You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Alex Rosenberg from Real Vision with another full audio version of an interview that we released as a video on Real Vision for subscribers. Now, this conversation, Brian Reynolds sits down with uh, our reporter, Tyler Neville. Now, Brian Reynolds may not be a household name, but we had him on because he is the expert in pension liabilities and how these pension funds are trying to generate the returns they need, especially when the pensions themselves are unfunded or, or underfunded. And so Brian is the former chief market strategist at Rosenblatt Securities. These guys sat down in late March in New Hampshire. We uh, brought a whole film crew up to New Hampshire, and uh, it, was, it was a good time. I think they filmed in a library. Not really relevant here for the audio version. But what is relevant is that even though this uh, conversation happened a few months ago, they kind of talk about what pensions mean for certain dynamics in the market. So it's actually a really useful framework and a framework you don't normally get. You know, these pension funds don't like to talk about what they're doing, especially when they're having trouble generating returns. So it's a really useful view into a huge part of the market. Pension funds are, are gigantic and we really don't know what's inside them until now, he said, trying not to sound cheesy. So please enjoy this full conversation where Tyler Neville sits down with former chief market strategist at Rosenblatt Securities, Brian Reynolds. Brian Reynolds here to talk about unfunded pension liabilities, the credit boom, and corporate buybacks. And we're here at this lovely New Hampshire Institute of Politics, which is the perfect uh, setting for our conversation. First, why don't you just get everyone familiar with your background and maybe go through that a little bit. Sure. So in a month, it'll be my 35th anniversary in this business. I started in 1984. And I've been in the business so long the junk market didn't exist when I started. That's how long I've been in the business. The first 16 years I spent on the buy side at David L. Babson & Company, it was a great place to work because it started in 1940. I have mentors that go back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. They taught me to follow the money. They taught me this business the old-fashioned way. And I've brought that through every job I've ever had since. And it was a great place to be because that was the emergence of credit as an asset class. Not only was the junk market not invented yet, but the actual investment grade credit market was still in its infancy. So it's a very different world now than it was then because credit 
is now so big it dominates financial markets. But back then it was a backwater. So I ran our money market funds, which is where shadow banking started. I was in charge of bank and finance bonds, which is some of the original shadow bankers. And in the, in the late 1980s, as structured finance began to became, become more significant, I was in charge of that product from the late 80s until 2000. So I kind of grew up with the modern credit market. I saw it develop from almost nothing into this large asset class, which is now the tail that wags the dog. Some of the things you talk about, the daisy chain of capital. Now that's like a primary theme throughout your work. Can you explain that for the viewers? Before we invented the modern credit market, the stock market ran on fundamentals, things like earnings, things like valuations. And then the credit market came along and starting in the 1990s disrupted that whole process. So now we're in the third modern credit boom. The first one lasted from 1991 through 2000. Then we had a financial disaster. The last, second one went from 2004 to 2007. Then we had another financial disaster. And then we launched another one in 2009. And all this daisy chain is, is our public pensions needing to make outsized returns. They have become the dominant global investor. Our pensions were only about 60% of GDP in 84. Now they're 120% of GDP. That's massive, spectacular growth. There's nothing on earth that's grown that fast from such a high base. So they're the dominant global investor, but they're so underfunded they need to make 7.5%. So talk about um, how the big, big pension funds work. Why 7.5%? Why and, and where's that money going? The 7%, 7.5% they need to make, that's the difference between what their governors and their legislatures have funded them at versus the promises they've made to our public sector workers, police officers, firefighters, teachers. Most state governments tend to work the same, so they all tend to have that same gap. And that gap works out to be 7.5%, which is crazy because most interest rates are much, much lower than that. So that, they really have to push the envelope in terms of what they invest in to try and get that. And you would think they would be in stocks because pensions should be long-term oriented, but most pension boards are police officers, teachers, firefighters, and politicians. They have a short-term focus, and so they invest in the credit market. They started doing it in the 1990s. The most famous credit fund they hired was John Merriweather's Long-Term Capital Management. But it wasn't just him, it was thousands and thousands of other credit funds that mimicked him. These pensions will hire these credit funds, they'll put money to work on an aggressive leverage basis to try and get that 7.5% yield they need. And when they buy these record amounts of corporate bonds from companies, that puts cash on the corporate balance sheets. Modern CEOs are incented to get their stock price up. So they take this unlimited money that comes from our pensions via these credit funds and use it to buy back their stock. That's a daisy chain of financial engineering. That's what happened in the 90s. It's what happened from 03 to 07. And it's what's been going on since 2009. Now, can you put that in a relative context? How much of the buybacks have pushed the market up versus, like, say, ETFs or mutual funds? How come people don't uh, quantify the buybacks in, in relative terms to that? They concentrate so much um, energy on, on Wall Street talking about ETF flows and mutual fund flows. And how does it get overlooked? And, and what's the number? Because the world has changed in the last three and a half decades. As I said, the junk market didn't exist when I started in the business. But from the late 1980s on, the junk market became, began to become a bigger force for this. And that's when we started putting on leverage. So 40 years ago in the 70s, the average company was highly rated. 
double A AA or triple A rated from a credit standpoint. Now we've added so much leverage in the last 40 years that the average credit quality has gone down to just above junk. That's how much we've levered up corporate America. And if you look at a chart of who's been buying stocks over the last few decades, there's been money going to ETFs, but that's come at the expense of mutual funds. Pensions, both state and private pensions, have been large sellers. So investors as a whole have really done nothing these last three decades. The buybacks have taken an increasing share to the point where they're almost 100% of the buyers of the last decade. In other words, investors have done nothing mm -hmm. on a net basis for 10 years. Yeah, they put money into ETFs at the expense of active products. And the result is this daisy chain of money coming in from taxes to pensions going into credit, which is then used to artificially push up stock prices. And a lot of times, you know, that, that money ends up in not profitable zombie companies. Um, and you talked about in 2015, 2016, I believe, that money flowing into energy companies that oversupplied the market. Um, can you talk about how that kind of related to back in the WorldCom days? This, this credit money typically zeroes in on a particular industry. In addition to boosting the overall level of a credit, we overdo it in an industry. So in the 1990s, we focused on companies like WorldCom and Enron. We inflated their balance sheets to the point where their valuations didn't jibe with reality, and then it came down like a souffle. Then we did the same thing with subprime housing in the next cycle, and that collapsed. And then we did it with energy companies, from say energy and commodity companies from say 2009 to 2013, then those companies collapsed. And now we're starting to do it with commercial real estate. So it's just like we go from one asset class to another within the context of boosting overall leverage. So in terms of shocks and supply, like I know the big concentration these days is you know, on the stock market when it's falling and you know, the VIX is going crazy. What happens to the credit markets? Because I think very rarely, you know, you turn on the news and you see, you know, stocks are in turmoil, stocks are in turmoil, but like no one's talking about how credit markets are functioning. Well, I have three themes. My first theme is that we're in this credit boom, this daisy chain of financial engineering. But my second theme is that it gets periodically interrupted by these panics because equity investors just don't believe in this. The stock market's outpaced the economic fundamentals over the last decade. So if you're a fundamentally oriented equity investor, you don't want to buy stocks, you don't want to own them. You want to sell them at the drop of a hat every time there's a worry. We've had 35 pullbacks in the stock market that have been marked by irrational inversions of the VIX curve, where people get so panicked about the downside that they pay up for short-term protection when longer-term protection is cheaper. The most recent of those was in the fourth quarter of 2018. And when these stock market panics happen and the VIX gets inverted, the credit market shuts down. Because these credit funds that are hired by our pensions to put money to work, they're allowed to take a break during a panic to see if the turbulence creates a better buying opportunity. So yields and spreads typically go up during these panics. That happened again in the fourth quarter of last year as demand for credit temporarily stops. But once the equity panic runs its course, as it did at the start of January, when the credit market opens right back up, people make up for lost time and stocks go ripping higher on a new round of buybacks and mergers. We've done that 35 times in the last 10 years. We'll probably keep doing it a number of times per year. These drops feel like the world is ending. And as soon as the panic is over, we go right back up.
That sure. frustrates active managers tremendously. Of course. And I think, um, so my background's in trading, so market structure-wise, uh, I think what's happening is outflows work differently. So back in 2008, you could be 30% of the trading volume and not move the price of a stock. Nowadays, you can be 5% of a trading volume and move a price of stock. So buybacks are, are constantly pushing us up. And then in the panics, when those, the corporate uh, pensions pull back and the credit market sees up, it's like a go trail going out. But what's interesting, I, I think what you're saying is pensions actually are, are always constantly there. I think you said in one of your notes, um, University of California Endowment uh, lowered their cash weighting. Uh, can you talk about that and CalPERS and how they're getting even more aggressive on the, on the engine front? Well, that example of lowering their cash weighting, it's not just that particular pension. It's a slew of pensions that are doing that because they all typically need to make about 7.5%. If, if you've got cash that yields 2%, that's a drag on that. So what we've seen over the last 10 years, especially the last five, is more and more pensions reducing their low low-yielding cash in favor of more aggressive credit investments. That helps increase the intensity of this credit boom, and it exacerbates these up-and-down panics because it removes shares from the stock market, which means that the money that remains can move shares with less effort, as yes, you mentioned. That, makes, a lot of that sense. makes the downside more rapid, and it makes the upside more rapid as well. And that's what that further drives people nuts. And now, another thing is, um the Detroit bankruptcy, how much has that influenced um, the, the next exuberance in, in investing in these, these uh, needed-based uh, investments? So the Detroit bankruptcy has actually radically changed the, the tenor of this credit boom. In the prior cycles, the 1990s with WorldCom and Enron, the next cycle with subprime, we did it purely with leverage. But now we're doing it with increased taxes. Because until Detroit went bankrupt, Nobody really cared about pensions because most state constitutions guarantee pensions. Once you give a pension to a police officer, firefighter, teacher, you can't cut it, you can't eliminate it. You just have to keep providing for that pension. But then Detroit went bankrupt and they filed in U.S. bankruptcy court. And the judge says, yes, I know the Michigan Constitution protects your pension, but you filed in U.S. bankruptcy court and U.S. law trumps state law, so the pensioners ended up taking a hit on the unfunded liabilities. And since most pensions are only about two-thirds funded, that sent shockwaves through the public labor union movement. And since then, they've gone to every major state. And every major state since then has either raised or is thinking of raising taxes to try and narrow this funding gap in our pension system. And the result is overwhelming. Every month I track pension votes going into, into credit from these new tax flows. The chart I do goes up and to the right. It's now growing faster than the average annual value of the federal tax cut that was passed in 2017. In other words, we did a trillion dollar tax cut over 10 years, that's 100 billion a year. State and local taxes, just for pensions, are now growing at more than 115 billion a year. So fiscal policy is actually negative now that's one more reason why the economy's cooling. But this money goes into levered credit. And it comes back to the stock market with five times the buybacks because that's the leverage they start to employ. And so if you're a fundamentally based investor, you're looking at a historically slow economy relative to prior decades and prior economic cycles. Yet we're putting more money to work than ever in credit and doing it on a leveraged basis. 
So you get one of the greatest stock market bull markets in history. That everyone hates. That everyone hates because it's way outpaced the economic fundamentals because of these new inflows of money at the state and local level. And there, can you give me like a recap of like, you know, California? I know you talk about like Kentucky, I believe. Um, any of those specific? It would be easier to list the pensions that are in good shape and are not raising taxes. Uh-huh. I think Delaware is in good shape. Uh-huh. But they're kind of small relative to the other states. You know, it started in California. You know, whether it's fashion or finance, trends start, to, trends start in California. So the California legislature passed a bill giving Cal Stur- or CalPERS an extra $5 billion a year over and above what they'd been doing. Then they passed another law giving CalSTRS another $5 billion a year over and above what they've been doing. And you can go down a list of all the major states, Texas, Colorado, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts. They've all taken steps to raise taxes and bring more money into the pensions, which doesn't do anything for the economy. It's actually a net negative for the economy, but it helps boost our financial markets. And that's why this is the most intense credit boom in our nation's history. And the short interest remains because all the economic fundamentals look horrible on the surface. The short interest remains high, which causes those extra short squeezes higher, People correct? hate stocks. Yeah, they hate them. Short selling, which is a bet that stocks are going to go down, is higher now than it was during the 2008 financial crisis. It's near a record. So active hedge fund managers have been betting against this bull market in near record amounts. That's another reason for active management underperformance on the hedge fund side. They're betting stocks are gonna go down and we're in one of the greatest bull markets in history. Why is it that hedge funds ignore that? You know, they, they wanna talk next quarter's earnings and, but when, when you're talking giant liquidity, they, they seem to ignore it. And, and why are you one of the lone wolf voices on the street that analyzes pensions, whereas everyone else is stuck in the weeds. Is it- I managed pension money for 16 years. So I was there at the beginning of this process. I helped do some of these practices that we're doing now. So I bought one of the first auto loan deals in the 1980s, one of the first credit card deals, one of the first manufactured housing deals in the 1980s, which of course turned into subprime in the next cycle. So, sorry. <laughs> at the time we were doing them, we thought they were great, they were good. Um, but Wall Street always takes a good idea and runs with it and pushes it until it becomes overdone and a negative for the financial system. So there's not a lot of strategists on Wall Street that have actually done structured finance the way I have. My mentors let me run in credit, but they also gave me experience in equities. So I can speak both languages. It's like I can be a general contractor and explain, explain to the plumbers what the electricians are doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people who come into this business on the equity side, they're taught equities and they're taught classical equities. Graham and Dodd's type stuff, fundamentals, valuations, margins of safety. Whereas our public pensions don't worry about any of that. All they focus on is the need to make seven and a half percent. So that's kind of like the dumb money and the smart money wants to short it because fundamentally this doesn't make any sense. But there's that old saying is that markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And it looks like this irrationality is not only going to continue, but it's going to intensify. So how does it all end? What, what indicators are you looking at to give you a heads up on, you know, 
when things change. Because these 35 that you talk about is, you know, what, how are you going to know next time that this is the one? My third theme is that this is just a credit cycle. Credit cycles always end and they always end badly. So this will be the same with this one. My first theme is it's a daisy chain of financial engineering. My second theme is we're going to have periodic panics. My third theme is it will end in a crisis. And that's the difference. We've had 35 panics that have been brief and seen stocks go back up. Eventually, we'll have a crisis like 2008, like 2000, where you have a multi-year financial market disaster. And the difference between a panic and a crisis is that in panics, we see pensions keep voting to put more money to work in credit, even though there's a panic. So we saw that in the fourth quarter of last year. October, November, and December were horrible for stocks. The credit market shut down towards the end of that. But yet pensions keep voting to take money in and allocate it to credit when the credit market will open back up. A crisis is when there's a run on the shadow banking system and our pensions are forced to sell their credit investments. Because credit's a one-way market. See, everybody's either buying or everybody's selling. We're like electricians. We're either on or we're off. On the equity side, I view them as plumbers with flow control because equity traders, as you've been, are trained to sell overbought rallies and buy oversold dips. We don't have that concept in credit. When we get overbought, we get overbought and stay there for years. And then somebody flips the switch and it's off. And what I mean by a run on the bank, it's like a run on the, bank, a run on the shadow banking system. It's like a run on the bank in the 1920s. All of a sudden, some people want their money back, and there's nothing behind it, so that causes a rush for the exits. So what happened in 2007, November of that year, Florida was running a cash fund, which is like a money market fund without any rules or regulations, on behalf of their cities and towns. One of the cities in Florida wanted some money back to buy some school buses, but they couldn't give, the fund couldn't give the money back because they were in subprime. So instead of cash, the city got slices of subprime, and it wasn't until four years ago that the cities were made whole. Mm -hmm. wow. That was a 24 billion fund. It had a $15 billion outflow in a few weeks. Wow. The New York Times detailed it perfectly in a story on November 30th of 2007. But it wasn't just Florida, it was the other cash funds that were also experiencing runs on the bank because all the city and town state treasurers, they all know each other, they all talk to each other. They're like, oh, this is actually in subprime, we need to get out. And when you've got subprime investments or illiquid structured finance investments, and a few people want to get out, it's impossible to make everybody whole. And that's what causes a crisis. So commercial real estate, you're keeping an eye on specifically. Commercial real estate, but also these lightly regulated cash funds. Because a few years ago, the SEC essentially banned institutional prime money market funds. Those were the money market funds that owned Lehman Commercial Paper and had the run on the bank in 2008. Gotcha, yeah. And they thought that would make the system safer. Most of the money went into treasury money market funds and did make the system safer. But a significant amount of money, which may be as large as $400 billion, went into these unregulated cash funds that take multiples of the risk of money market funds. So to me, that's where the next run on the shadow banking system is likely going to occur. It typically happens in the stuff that's perceived to be safe, which means people get very comfortable with their expectations 
And then when they realize they need their money and they can't get it all, that causes a run for the exits. So that's the difference between panic, when stocks go right back up, and a crisis when you have a financial calamity and a multi-year bear market in equities. When I see the next run on the shadow banking system, I don't expect it for a number of years, but when I see it, that'll be the sign that this cycle is over and that a disaster lies on the horizon. So since you think this bull market has legs to run and you know, I think it's three or so years you, you think we still are in this bull market, do you think it gets turned into euphoria or has the system been financialized where it's not really following its way into uh, the retail pockets per se? Well, right now it's the opposite of euphoria. Mm -hmm. yeah, we People were... hate stocks. Yeah. To the extent that anyone's putting money to work in stocks, it's in ETFs, but the expense of, at the expense of mutual funds. So that's just kind of like, that's a wash. And the big institutions like pensions are selling their stocks to put money into credit. That's not euphoria. That's a dislike of stocks. When the yield curve inverts, and that, I'm talking the two-year treasury versus the 10-year treasury, historically, that's what launches a two-year cycle of LBOs, where companies get taken private at insane valuations. And those two years after that inversion are typically some of the best years for stocks because companies are getting taken out at above market prices. People feel compelled to get money to work so they don't fall behind. And if you're short or betting on stocks going down, you've got to cover because if you're betting on a downtrend and your company gets taken out 25% higher, you've lost your money. So the euphoria doesn't, doesn't typically happen until the last two years of the cycle. Given that this is the opposite of euphoria, that's one more reason why I think that this cycle has longer to go. And some of the deals um, you've talked specifically about where they raise money in the debt markets, they're massively oversubscribed still, correct? Can you expose on that a little bit? Um, any deals specifically where you remember? Where, we don't talk about yeah. specific deals uh -huh. in public, but in the last month, there have been some financings that were three to five times oversubscribed. Which is amazing. And some of them were for lousy credits. Mm -hmm. um, there was a loan that came to market. At the time, it was the worst loan ever, according to some sources, in terms of investor, investor protections or covenants. The company redid some of the covenants, so some sources said it was one of the worst instead of the worst. And they were still able to boost the size of the deal by 25%, and it was still like three times oversubscribed. So there's just a massive amount of appetite for garbage, mm -hmm. which is one of the hallmarks of a credit boom. When this, you get this junky stuff coming to market and it's oversubscribed, that tells you that people need to make above market returns. So if they need to make 7.5% and junk's at 6 and investment grades at 3, you've got to push the envelope on structure and on credit to get your desired return, which means as this cycle goes on, you have to run harder and faster. And that's why you're seeing, I guess, money going into private equity uh, more. Like, did you say CalSTRS increased their allocation? They're hiring uh, 15 more people, I believe. Most of the large pensions are looking at creating their own private equity firm within a firm type uh, ventures. They're wrestling with how to do that. They propose, a number of them have proposed adding more internal staff but some of the best deals are from external managers, so they're debating that. 
But what they're not debating is their desire to move away from public markets towards private markets. And not only in private equity, but in private credit. Private credit is one of the fastest growing areas of finance. And we talk about shadow banking. This is the epitome of shadow banking, where in a private credit market, it doesn't even trade, it's not allowed to trade. So we put it more deeply into the shadows, so regulators and investors have less of an idea of what's going on, which fuels more demand for equities because of the cash flows. But when there's a run on the shadow banking system, it's more of a surprise to investors and regulators and what leads to a bigger disaster. I believe we had Jeff Gunlock on before and he was saying, it's kind of ironic the point we are in time because this money is going almost to unconstrained bond funds like you're talking about on the active side. They're super active. They're putting it anywhere they want. Whereas on the equity side, everything's passive. And, and just 30 years ago, it was almost you know, the opposite where you had passive bond funds and active equity. So it seems to be an ongoing pendulum that swings back and forth. Well, that, in that's because the people who allocate money drive by looking through the rearview mirror. So it's very hard to beat an equity index like the S&P 500 if you're an active manager. So the trend has been to passive ETFs to fully participate in the stock market because the smart money, the active money, has been betting against this bull market and causing underperformance. Whereas on the credit side, it's very easy to beat a credit index during a bull market. All you have to do is overweight yield. Yeah. To overweight yield means you overweight the worst credits. Then you buy Argentinian bonds at 8%. <laughs> no. we, we were, we've been issuing bonds in the last couple of weeks for European banks, yeah, for Russian banks, amazing, and for African nations, yeah, all with overwhelming demand, yeah. So if you overweight your portfolio with yield, you'll outperform, mm -hmm. and that's why money flows to active managers on the credit side in a credit boom. But when you're in the lousiest credits. When it turns and goes against you, you can't sell those. And that's why you get a bigger disaster because everyone wants to go for the exit at the same time. And in a one-way market, there is no exit. And I believe Dodd-Frank has kind of uh, nullified the brokers and all this. Their supply is absolutely shrunk. So you almost have this situation, you know, highway going in, go trail going out, where you have these giant institutions on, on the credit side owning things. And if they do sell next time, I guess, Who's the only game in town is, is the Fed. I, I don't know. Do you have any uh, well, perspective Dodd, on Dodd that? Well, Dodd Frank is interesting in terms of both the intensity of this credit boom and for what lies ahead. I think back to the last cycle and the cycle before, the broker-dealers were some of the biggest customers for this credit. Remember, the Bear Stearns funds were 50 times margin, but so was Bear Stearns. Yeah. And Merrill Lynch and Morgan, they were all 50 times margin. Now they own none of this stuff. They're clean as a whistle, but yet it's the most intense credit boom in history. The credit market's grown by over 85% since this credit cycle started. Mm. Nominal GDP is only up about 38%. Amazing. So we've massively levered up this economy, but without the broker-dealers participating. That tells you the other participants, the pensions, the insurance companies, are pressing the accelerator even harder this cycle than they were the last time around, which is why this credit boom is so intense. And the brokers never helped anybody out in a crisis, all right? If you wanted a bid, there were no bids because they already owned the credit. 
The one thing that might make the, le the next disaster less worse at the, Boston at the bottom is if Congress relents and lets broker-dealers take on that risk. Interesting, yeah, yeah. I doubt it. I think there'll be a bailout faster than they can change that law. But that might be one relief valve. But it won't, it won't come into play early in a crisis. It would only come into play towards the end of a crisis. Gotcha. Yeah. It might signal the bottom as opposed to signaling a crisis. Interesting. Now, do you see any uh, social ramifications of this all? Um, like, what happens to the millennials? What happens to the baby boomers in, in a pension crisis? Like, will there be a social divide? Is it going to be a political answer? I find it ironic. We're, we're here at the New Hampshire <laughs> Institute of Politics. Yeah, yeah. And this is where all the presidential candidates come through when they visit New Hampshire for the first primary in the nation. And it's led to a tremendous divide. Because if you look at who's been the winners since we started financial engineering in the 1990s, it hasn't been the average working class person. In real terms, real personal income has done nothing for 30 years. It's been gravitating towards the 1%. And that's because of this financial engineering, which creates a boom and a bust cycle for WorldCom and Enron, a boom and a bust cycle for subprime, then a boom and a bust cycle for commodities, and now a boom and a bust cycle for commercial real estate, which leaves the average person no better off than when they started. So no wonder why everybody's angry. And so from a political standpoint, you're going to get more of a division, I think. From a financial market standpoint, the politics don't matter. Because what really matters is the large investors, our pensions, needing to make 7.5%. And that trumps any political, political ideology. Until they have to cut potential uh, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. We yeah. started doing this under George Bush the first. Uh -huh. Then we did it under Bill Clinton. Then we did it under Bush the second. Uh -huh. Then we did stopped. it under Obama, and now we're doing it under Trump. That's a pretty wide spectrum of presidents, which means it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. The engine just keeps going. As long as the pot curve, the yield curve is positively sloped, and our pensions need to make seven and a half percent. This is going to go on no matter who's in office and has for 30 years. Yeah. So that last part where the, the yield curve does invert, um, I guess that's a race for if you're, if you're a f someone who wants capital, right, you probably want to just run to the capital markets and, and raise money. You're just taking it in. Because right now, you know, we're seeing, you know, a, a little inversion on the three-month to 10-year. Is that the next big kick? Will, will supply just go in overdrive at that point because... Supply's always there. Yeah. Companies always want to borrow because they don't know when it's going to end. So throughout this bull market, throughout this credit boom, throughout the last one and the one before, companies have always rushed to market. They're always in a hurry to borrow. Either the Fed's raising rates and they want to borrow money before the cost of capital goes up, or the Fed's cutting rates and they want to get capital before the economy cools off. The variable is demand. Yeah. And in a credit boom, the demand is always there, except during these brief panics when it shuts down, mm -hmm. until there's a crisis, a run on the financial, a run on the shadow banking system, and then there's no capital that's available. Right now, we're seeing demand increase. That's leading to a more intense credit boom. When the yield curve inverts, that leads to a more intense financial engineering environment, because that leads to a two-year LBO wave. When did private equity 
when did leverage buyout kind of morph into private equity? Like it's, it seems like we conflated those two things over the past. Well, technically, LBOs are private equity yeah. because there's no publicly traded stock. Uh-huh. So to it's me, like they rebranded to me it's, a, it's a polite name for LBOs. Yeah. Just like high yield bonds is a polite name for junk bonds. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, the yeah. same thing with just a nicer phrase to use it. Yeah. Uh, that's why private credit it sounds much nicer than junk bonds yeah, or yeah. highly leveraged loans. Yeah. You say private credit, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. it's like a little club. Yeah. <laughs> in, in reality, it's just leveraged junk loans yeah, yeah. and junk bonds. There's more of a demand for it because our pensions have this demand for it. When the pensions have a run on their system and their cities and towns want some of their money back, that's when it's a crisis. Which... Demographically, it looks like baby boomers are retiring over the next 10 years or so. I guess we'll find out uh, at that point. It's a real generational issue, but um, that might actually help solve the crisis. Because if you've got enough people with enough demand, in other words, if you have the big California pensions and the Illinois pensions and the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania pensions going to Congress in a disaster, representing millions of blue-collar voters, I think Congress will give them a bailout faster than they gave one to the banks. Yeah. And if we do that and make our pensions go to defined contribution instead of defined benefit, then we can stop this crazy boom-bust investing and in the next cycle start to invest for real sustainable economic growth for the first time in 40 years. Yeah. Then you won't have uh, unprofitable companies. For- if, if we, well, not only unprofitable, but leveraged. Yeah. Because it's the leverage that really causes the boom and bust. And if we can arrange to eliminate that leverage, mm-hmm. eliminate these credit funds that need to reach for yield, then the millennials will be in good shape because they'll be functioning in a non-leveraged growing economy. Yeah. And there you have it. Brian Reynolds, thank you so much for coming on Real Thank Vision. you for having me. It's been awesome. And uh, hopefully you'll come back I'd love soon. to. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com